0: up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff. This is episode number 36. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts, and joining me, as per usual, Ben Fisher. Ben, how's it going?
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff Podcast. This is episode 36, thanks. and joining me, not as usual, is Sirkovitz. Welcome.
2: Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for inviting
1: me. Anytime. We're happy to have you here. Uh, people in our Discord will know you as a limited data analysis, uh, someone that spend some time working with uh 17 lands, crunching some numbers, putting some great graphs in our in our discord. Is that what you would call yourself too? Well,
2: that's what I aspire to, but um probably I'm just a mediocre magic player that uh, tries to relive the glory past from uh, my first time when I played magic and uh I found my niche in looking at numbers and trying to figure out what's going on.
1: I don't know if I would say anyone that makes, you know, day 2 of the arena opens a mediocre magic player, but <laughs>
2: On third attempt, we have to stress that very strongly so that the, the listeners won't get the idea that you just like push bosh, bosh, open the pool, qualify, next.
1: Well, that's true, that's true. I will say two-thirds of the people on here made day two. That, that's a pretty good track record. Wow, Ooh, I, mean, I feel I feel attacked. look to to be fair zach your deck was awesome but i think you got a little uh you got a little screwed over
0: it was pretty sweet but yeah so this week we're talking all about um limited analysis with sirkovitz so we'll get into that momentarily but before we do of course want to plug the discord ben already mentioned it we have a lot of stuff going on there on a regular basis uh especially with kaldheim a lot of different things to discuss with the way that the format is keeping people on their toes i'd say we've got a lot of stuff based on snow and all the aggro decks that have been popping up so great discussion going on there and if you're interested in taking part in that definitely give the discord a a look that the uh, link to that is in the episode description or on our twitter page so you can check it out there also the show is brought to you by you the listener via our patreon so you can check that out if you aren't patron, you can check that out on patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod. We have all sorts of different tiers. I think there are five different tiers over there starting at $2 a month up to $10 a month. And any little bit helps keep us doing this on a regular basis. So thank you to all of our patrons. Ben, you've got a real life crack and draft type thing for us. So why don't you uh, crack that open and we can get into that aspect of the show. That's right. It's a it's a
1: special occasion. So I thought it'd be best if we broke out some paper magic cards. Let me see if the mic picks this up. You get that? Yeah, that's a sound that I haven't through? heard in quite a while. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, listen to that. Listen to that pack. Maybe even a, a bit, of, a bit of shuffling.
0: Is this an ASMR podcast now?
1: <laughs> it can be. All right, so let's, uh, let's start us off. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of go through the usual. Seize the spoils next. I mean, next.
2: Uh, uh, it's still a card. I, I yeah. would play it in my snow decks if I had to. It's not as bad as it's you know. It's it's not complete garbage.
1: Oh. That's true. I think we've gotten a little bit used to seeing this effect for two mana. And then when we look at this, we have to remember it does make a treasure. So it is still kind of, you know... Like two and mana. The treasure,
2: not, even, not even the ramp, but the color fixing is quite important in some of those decks. Like, very often you make a snow pile and you miss out on one color, or you have this one card that you only have two sources for. And this can actually make a break. And if you're digging for your coma, well that's that's the card mm-hmm. to do. Obviously, I wouldn't first pick it ever.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, this next one is, uh, I think, going to see even less play. A null. I, I have yet to cast this in the format. Although, I could see if you're playing against an opponent with, like, if it's best at three and they have just some some bonkers artifacts and enchantments maybe a runed crown and a few runes Ananasika's chariot something like that I I was
2: blown out by an just a couple of days ago when my opponent played it on my cosmos elixir mm. and it hurt yeah but was still, it, it was it a it bad card. It? yeah it, 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 no it was best of three
1: okay next up we've got best gear shieldmate this is an interesting card uh usually we see these common white cards that bring a creature along with them when they enter the battlefield, usually like a three mana in in white or black. But this one, notably, it's when it dies. Uh, I found that to be an interesting uh, little mix-up here.
2: I think that this is on purpose. This is basically a card that is designed not for go-white decks, but for uh, equipment decks, which means that you attack with it equipped. If they trade with it, you have a next target for the equipment, uh, and you don't lose the steam. So you can basically miss one creature play, and you still have something to drop your uh, pick or imbued um, rune crown on. So that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's I think, on purpose. Unfortunately, this sort of bites with the go white strategy. So it's it's pretty tricky to get the um, aggro decks in this format, I think, because there are three distinct types of them. And depending on the type, you want this creature or not. And this one is definitely the best match for equipment decks.
1: Next up, we've got one half of my new favorite finisher in the format. Uh, we've got Haggymob, the finishing combo, of course, being Haggy Mob plus the uh, the black rune, blue rune mortality, which j- can just really wreck an opponent's board
2: I, I still prefer my black rune on the dwarven hammer just to make sure that all the damage goes through but
0: i i like it on on battlefield raptor myself I, I i just something about a death touch first striking one two is just lovely
2: if you put it on the hammer you can equip the raptor with the
0: hammer i'm not <laughs> that's saying <true>. that's <laughs> possible. no you got me that's true
1: and the haggy mob could ping down the dwarf token that comes with the hammer so i think we've got a we've got a golden fashioned rock paper scissors here
2: yeah, but still a card that you want to wield or pick yeah, at the late, late late stages of the draft.
1: Speaking of which, we got a mammoth growth here. I've been okay with putting one of these in my green decks. Uh, I don't hate it as much as I did at the start of the format.
2: It's great with both creatures, that's another thing. Like if you attack with the 3-2, what's the name? Tuskari Firewalker. People will block it almost always just to kill it and get it off the board if you just can play it for one mana and one mana to try to find something extra. You're probably in a good position because you'll have a second attack with it, and you remove something for a cost of a card. So yeah, mm. but again, I mean, not a priority.
0: Yeah. Next up, we've got Dread Rider. I don't mm. think I've ever played a Dread Rider.
2: Playable, but the decks that use it, they don't come together often, I guess. It's actually surprisingly good when you have this um, rootless you. Mm. I was just thinking can, that, and you can use it as an additional target, and you know, some kind of a, like really controlled... This is a really controlled deck card. This is, you drop it, you, you block uh, any attacks, and you just uh, basically pick them out uh, over the time of five turns.
1: Yeah, on the power rankings of rootless U targets, it's well below the worm, but I think it's significantly above the Ox.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. Worse than ver- Vernon clicks.
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Next up, I think we've got uh, something that I'm happy to first pick here. We get a Shimmer Drift Veil. Yeah,
2: that's, that's, I think, fourth best common of the set in my head. Certainly the pick right now. Yeah, that's definitely the pick for now. I mean, it's it's just fixes the mana. It is a snow permanent. You can put it even in your non-snow decks if you uh, don't get the own snow just as a mana fixing engine. That's just great.
1: Yeah, if I'm playing maybe a, a, a red-green deck that is just not playing any one-drops and I just want some extra fixing because I have maybe some intense color requirements, yeah, why not? Now, where do you have the top three? Uh, I think that it's been a bit of a discussion in the Magic community between uh, Behold the Packmate and Demon Bolt, about how that shakes out. I just did data on Packmate, and that's clearly
2: number one. Mm
1: -hmm. This card is just
2: busted. I think that foretelling Packmate on turn two is the best thing you can do in the format on common level, by far. And I would pick Demon Demon Bolt second, but that's just my preference. I'd rather play Aggro than Control, and I'd rather play Red than Blue, Mm. and uh, Behold third.
1: Yeah, that sounds good. I also had Packmate top.
2: I think that lots of the orders, you know, people give them canonically. Okay, this is my pick order and that's how it should be. But so much of it, preferred, it depends on the preferences in um, gameplay. Definitely. And I just know that with my rubbish lapses of concentration for one turn that cost me games... I'd rather finish them quickly, so that maybe that one turn that I lose my concentration comes every three game, three matches and not every second
1: match. Clearly, you've done a bit of self-analysis, too, which I think is another very good skill for Magic players.
2: That's true. I, mean, I think that knowing your own weaknesses is one of the most important aspects of the gameplay, because if you know what you're doing wrong, first of all, you'll be more careful. But if you know you can't be more careful, at least you will know how to minimize uh, your own shortcomings.
1: Mm, for sure. Next up, we've got Frost Peak Yeti. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a card.
2: I never played it. I have to say, I haven't I, either. I, it's it's not a bad card, but I just have an allergy to the blue four mana three three drops. <laughs> For so many so many expansions in a in a row, there was one of those, and they were always rubbish. And I, maybe I'm undervaluing the frost uh, frost Pacchietti, but um, never never picked it, never played it. I always had something else to do uh, as my evasive creature. I prefer the you know ice hide troll. <laughs>
1: yeah for sure this is a bit of a downgrade on that or the eradicator valkyrie if one of these yeah, exactly. snow decks wants a late game way to smack Hayes, through
2: eradicator valkyrie i think you mean the Hail, Hail oh Storm? i was like eradicator yeah, know, is I a uh-
1: <laughs> yeah. so, so, so okay, i actually just drafted a deck that had both or uh so, so i I'm, I'm a little like uh, <laughs> tied between but anyway both
2: good but i think eradicator is slightly better
1: <laughs> <laughs> just, just a little uh, speaking of Valkyries, we've got Stalwart Valkyrie next. This is the white one, the 3 2 that you can pay for one of the white and exile a creature from your graveyard. Eh, yeah, this thing has impressed me, but I think I'm still taking Shimmer Drifil. Awesome.
2: I'm still living the dream of playing the turn 1 Battlefield Raptor, getting it killed, and then playing this on turn 2. That never <laughs> happened so far, but, uh, you know, maybe one day. But it's a very good card. It's super annoying, and it's also it's really powerful against snow decks because they cannot deal with Flyers that well. If you play 2-3, they will maybe get around it somehow but if you start playing five of them they will eventually run out of uh, solutions unless they have the reach equipment or something
1: Mm -hmm. i still want to live the dream of playing egan the god of death except the backside which mills a card every turn of playing that on turn one and then just following up with valkyrie after valkyrie that way nothing even has to die that's true but you
2: won't draw a card from it so (laughs)
1: Uh, yeah okay next up we've got behold the multiverse no, our, our first kind of contender against the Shimmerdrift veil vale here i think i would probably oh, take behold over it i would take Behold hold over it yeah likewise now we're on to our uncommons first up is draugr's helm i think one of the one of the weaker of the uh the, the that cycle of kind of living weapon equipment i like I the hammer the most personally
2: i think it's a much better card in sealed i mean i've been battered by it in the day two of the arena open quite badly People putting it again, this is the weakness of the snow decks. They don't deal with flyers very well. And if you put this one on uh augury Raven, all of a sudden you're dealing with the five five menace flyer and uh usually you don't have solutions for that. Yeah and that was my case.
0: <laughs> yeah, I found I found it actually to be really good as a top end too in like blackweight aggro decks where you can drop this as a five drop, you get your four four menace. And you know alpha alpha smash with maybe a warlord's call up or something, and you know you can close out games pretty pretty well with it. And then you can just you know keep slapping menace on anything you want.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a very good finisher in general, uh, although it's still nothing comparable in power with Shimmer Rift Veil or uh, Beyond mm-hmm. the Multiverse. I I mean
0: if I get it like pick six, I'm I'm quite happy. Yeah, definitely mm-hmm. still on Behold right now.
1: Speaking of cards that you know we're still trying to get to do the thing that we want them to do, Dual Strike. Have either of you cast this yet? Have you had any good experiences with dual strike?
0: I have not. I, I have only bad. Only bad. <laughs> yeah. I got. I was playing with someone, and they had
2: those foretold cards, like for the whole game. And I built my board, and I was pretty, pretty, pretty well ahead. They played some kind of a red-blue uh, giants, and I got dual strike into dual strike into demon bolt uh, at some stage, <laughs> and uh, that basically was a plague wind in this case. But of. I would still not play it. I mean, it's just ridiculous, the card.
1: I suppose the dream is uh, you take Behold pack one and then you wheel this and you get to double Behold at some point, but I'm not even entirely sure that's good. Sometimes these slower decks want to be casting Behold on turn three or four when you just don't have the opportunity to do this kind of nonsense.
2: I think that the rule that don't pick cards that only are good because of your other cards is quite a strong rule in magics. And that's why I would avoid this type of effect. Even though it looks fancy when it works once in five times, you still have to cope with those four times that you don't play a magic combo.
1: Next up, we've got Nico Defies Destiny. This is the blue-white saga. This is the uncommon. It's got the foretell theme, but I find that sometimes even in my dedicated foretell decks, for as uh, infrequently as those come together, maybe you've got some Vega the Watchers and some other foretell nonsense. This is often the weakest card in the deck, and, and this usually doesn't make it. Yeah, I've seen
2: it be good once. I never played it because I don't think that it just makes the power level that I aspire to in my deck. I've seen it good once when someone's playing Esper and they played this zero three 3 guy that you can foretell any card in your deck and they foretold like four of them. Then they played this gained eight life. So they regained all the lost tempo and then they started mm. spilling out whatever they foretold. That was the only case when I saw it good, uh, as being good and, uh, and still it was not great because the cards that they foretold didn't have foretell so they couldn't even get anything back as the last chapter.
1: Mm-hmm. Last but not least for our rare, uh, it's okay. It's the Blood Sky Massacre. So this is the saga, where the first chapter, you get a 2-3 red Demon Berserker creature token with Menace. Second, whenever a Berserker attacks, you draw a card and lose a life. And finally, you add a red for each Berserker you control, and that mana doesn't end as steps and phases end.
2: It's a very good card. I like it. But I wouldn't first pick it, I think. I think I'm still on Behold. It's a great, like, thing that you pick on pick four when you're already a bit in the red or a bit in the black. And this one comes in, and you sort of, okay, I know my second color right now. I can go Berserkers all the way, and uh, and then it's great. But you really want to be black, red, heavy on Berserker's aggro deck. And I wouldn't want to dedicate myself to it in first pick because this deck doesn't come together very often because you need a certain density of two drops. And black two drops are very poor.
1: Mm, Yeah, I agree. I've found uh, opening a monocolored rare or mythic to be uh, a a pretty effective way to have a nice draft because there's so many of these powerful multicolored spells that you really shouldn't be taking pack one, pick one. But I think a lot of people still do. The ideal start to a draft is you start with some some busted rare, like uh, ideally a green one so you can wind up anywhere, but maybe like a Toski or an Asika's Chariot or something. And then you get past like a green-red Saga or a green-white Saga, and then you're like, okay, well, strong signal, uh, I'm already in half the color, maybe around, like you mentioned, picks like three through five or six even. Uh, and this tends to be a good way. So taking this early, not the best way to start off a draft. Just send it to someone down the line and <laughs> cement yourself in other colors.
2: And you see, Especially that if I opened Waking the Trolls, I would have picked it even though it's multicolor because I'm not limited by that by any chance because I can put mm. it in my snow deck. I can put it in my red-green aggro as a curve topper. That's There's plenty of things I can do with it. But this one really fits in one deck. It won't fit in the snow because you are not aggressive, so you won't get the full value of it. So this is not something that I would splash in my multicolor deck. While some other multicolor like Birds of Litiara is a perfect card to pick on the first pick because it will fit in the snow and it will fit in kind of some kind of simic maybe non-snow archetype with several uh, changed links. And this one really has one plan and if you don't get on this plan you just wasted your first pick. I'd rather have a safer thing like um Demon Bolt, Star of Puckmate, and, uh, and uh, behold the multiverse.
1: Mm-hmm. I think we're all pretty settled on taking the Behold here, which, of course, will just be fantastic in any blue deck.
0: Or in any deck that has anything blue in it.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure.
0: Awesome. So that'll bring us to our Teferi Tibble. If you're new to the show, this is the section where we talk about our previous week, what went well, what went poorly. So, Circovitz, uh, why don't you uh, kick us off with this one? So, my teferi, teferi. My Teferi was, we did this really neat analysis of
2: um, how does the spending mana change the outcome of your games. And um, the graph that I produced from it was really sweet. And maybe you can put a link to it in the show notes uh, for posterity. But uh, basically, we showed the very clear trend that the more mana you spend, the more you win in a game. And you can show that across multiple turns. So even in turn three, when you spent a bit less mana than you could have, um, if you curved out properly, you're, go- you're going to have a much lower chance of winning. But later I did the same analysis, but I looked at um, the difference in mana spending between you and the opponent. And uh, this is also great. Like, even if you spend one mana more than your opponent, you have a much better... By turn three, you have a much higher chance of winning that game um, than if you're on parity. So that was quite a cool analysis. It worked out well, and it got, like, quasi-viral i mean
0: yeah there were a lot of people talking about it uh i saw a lot of folks chatting on twitter yeah i think i grew like by by
2: a quarter in my followers just because lsv retweeted it so yeah (laughs) there you go very cool uh so that was my that was my teferi moment my tybalt was myself really i mean i was super excited to be in the second day of the open and um i think i didn't play well enough i you know you realize in this moment that um I'm not a pro tour level player anymore, and uh, I need to reevaluate my gameplay. And um, if I want to achieve more with playing, I need to work much more hard on on on, on concentration and and staying 100% all the time and 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 mastering the arena. Um, you know, I mean, the stupid misclick like going to blocks and you cannot activate an ability after that uh, cost me a game basically. Mm which was super annoying, especially that I knew that I have to activate that creature. It just was like I, I, I clicked over something quickly and uh, it cost me a game. Super annoying. You don't want to lose games like this by by silly by, by, by uh, lapse of concentration. So I was really disappointed. I, I had a decent pool. It was probably not good enough to go into the money, but at least when you get a decent pool, just make anything that you can to win with it and don't do stupid punts yourself. So... Uh, the only person I can be angry is myself, really. Um, but that was a bit of a tibble. I went 1-2 in the second day. And, um, you know, you would hope to go a bit better, at least to get the gems back from the other two unsuccessful attempts on qualifying.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's always good, though, to be able to take that step back, right, and think, like you know, here are some ways I could up my game. And these are the things that need to be worked on. That's, that's a, you know, a great quality to be able to to actually do that.
2: And I think it comes much easier with age because you're used to failure much more
1: the longer you live. Plus making it the day two is still an achievement under itself. That's true. I mean,
2: I can't complain about it. It's just like, you know, it, the feeling of being in the second day of a GP, which this sort of emulated is is a great feeling. And then when you punt it, it just like feels a bit, eh.
1: yeah. Hmm. Ben, how about you? Let's see. Uh, I guess my, my first half of my Teferi, I should probably mention that today's my birthday. So that, That's that been a, a kind of fun Happy time.
0: birthday. That it is. You should
2: have mentioned it a bit earlier, shouldn't
1: you? <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Look, I mean, we, we have other exciting... Today's a very exciting show. There's a lot happening. This had to be relegated to the, the Teferi section, uh, but... Kind of along with that, uh, I, I also was at day two of the Arena Open. Uh, I had one, my first attempt, which I thought was actually a pretty solid uh, a pretty solid deck, uh, but I didn't get there in the end. My second attempt, I thought was a worse deck. Uh, it actually got there all the way. Um, it was a, a black-white uh, kind of double spell deck. I had some extremely tight games, games that could have gone either way for uh, the majority of the match. And I, I had a little bit of a cheat code in that I had Kai in my deck but admittedly, she was just a very expensive exile uh, sorcery. Uh, I, I upticked Kaya once in my entire uh, run, so <laughs> she was she was mostly just a removal spell. But besides that, uh, I had a great time just talking with everybody in the Discord the the morning of the open. Just everybody started posting their pools and chatting about different different builds and commenting on uh, lands and, and different uh, strategies. It, it was a, a fun feeling of excitement that we honestly haven't had, like you mentioned, since since GPs. And uh, for my table, I got to go back into the, uh, the teaching well here. <laughs> so I've hit a bit of a wall with my astronomy class. And I've moved past the solar system. We're done with solar system astronomy. We just finished the seasons and all that good stuff. Now, I want to start getting into some of the, the cooler astrophysics. However, for students to know that, you have to learn about cosmological distance uh, and how to observe things that are different distances away. To do that, you have to understand light. To understand light, you have to understand particle model, bullet model, uh, the the photon model, the wave model. That this kind of historical progression through all these, Uh, but that means you need to understand wavelength. But that means you need to, and and so on and so forth. So uh, I I found myself uh, promising my students, "Oh yeah, we're about to get to some really exciting stuff." Uh, And now I find myself with the challenge of making some of the precursors (laughs) exciting. Before we get to aliens, which is what they all really want to know.
0: <laughs> well, uh, hopefully you can you can. F- I I've known you to be creative in times of of necessity, so I imagine you'll be able to figure that out. Uh, I'm not too worried for you on that. I'll I'll you, do you
1: my know, I, best.
2: I, I used to have this old school physics teacher, and he just had this like long piece of rubber attached to the wall. Um, and when there was the wave lesson, he just like took this piece of rubber and just like started shaking it and said, "This is a wave." And then he started doing it faster. Now the wavelength is shorter. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Uh, That's great. You know, uh, I I used to use the analogy of ocean waves uh, coming from a shore town myself. But then I realized the students that I'm teaching, a lot of them have never been to the ocean. So I I was thinking I need to really reevaluate what I'm using here. Uh, And then one of my students actually suggested like the haircut wave, like waves in someone's hairdo. And I was like, okay. I guess I can adapt. Uh, I guess I'll use that as my my go-to analogy now.
0: I'd rather not use haircut in my case. <laughs> <laughs>
1: anyway, Zach, how about you? What's up?
0: Yeah, so myself, uh, my Teferi, well, I didn't make it to day two of the open, uh, but we had a limited open, which was phenomenal. Very excited that that Wizards decided to do that. Um, but my, my Teferi is that I finally drafted a Giants deck. Uh, I think it was last week i mentioned that i hadn't quite been able to draft that deck and you know we were both pretty excited about it um the the deck that i did draft this past week i managed a trophy with which was fantastic given that coming out of znr i was a bit of a trophy drought for me my win rate was really abysmal and in znr for some reason um but this was a unique giants deck it was basically mono red and i think it's splashed green or yeah, I think it splashed green for like a packmate and a struggle, uh, but it was almost entirely mono-red, so it was really, really interesting that it came together that way. Uh, my tibble was that in a different uh, different set of games or with a different deck, I was targeted by an immolating Skull Cairn like, by my opponent, and I had only a Behold the Multiverse in hand and four mana up, and I just like skipped through... Dis- like I forgot that the Skull Cairn makes you discard a card, and I just got rid of my... I was like, oh, okay, I guess, I guess I'm not drawing any more <laughs> cards then. <laughs> And I was already oh, like man. phenomenally behind in that game too. So it was just like, you know, one of those like like salt in the wound kind of things. That's brutal. And what the lesson is,
2: always foretell beyond the multiverse.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: That's true. I think I want to have uh, at some point an episode about foretelling just specifically because it's such a, a fascinating, unique mechanic. The way you can say foretell, behold, and then leave up a disdainful stroke just provides so much flexibility. But I guess I'll leave that for another time. So we've got some listener questions this week. First up, Soak Boy asks, "What are some tips and tricks for getting to Mythic?" So I have been trying to hit Mythic pretty consistently. Uh, so I, I have a bit of experience. I can comment on this. Uh, I guess there's two big questions to answer first. Do you want to hit Mythic constructed or limited? And you know, there's the right answer to that. Obviously, limited is just you know the best. Uh, and then, do you want to make the top 1,200 and stay in the top 1,200? So I guess the the first uh, answer to the first question is personal choice, right? Uh, I think it does tend to be easier to hit Mythic and Limited because there's fewer players in general playing Limited, and also fewer formats, given that both standard and historic factor into uh, Mythic ranking for Constructed. And then secondly, whether you want to stay in the top 1,200 or or try to make the top 1,200 is a bit more of a mini game. I've made the Mythic 1,200 all, but I think one or two of the seasons uh, that we've had it so far. So I found some ways to kind of game the system a little bit. I've noticed that uh, it's best to hit Mythic halfway through the month so that you wind up at around like 500 uh, at around the 15th. So I've noticed uh, that you tend to drift by 30 ranks a day if you're not playing. Uh, This is for limited. I cannot comment on constructed. I've not made top 1,200 and constructed only the percentages. In limited, I think my my record is 19th. Um, But I will say that if you join earlier in the month, if you make it to Mythic within like the first 7 to 10 days, the drift can be within the 50s, Uh, so it can be even higher. And if you hit it too late, uh, maybe around the 20th of the month, you risk there being enough other people already in Mythic that you uh, will be too far down, or uh, maybe the drift will, will vary a little bit and you'll wind up out of the top 1,200. So once you're in that Mythic top 1200, you really just need to win every game to truly net rank. Uh, a, a loss loses you more rank than a win gains you. So you need that strong winning record or bust. Otherwise, if you are going for limited uh, and I guess I, I could just offer some general advice for hitting Mythic, check out what other Mythic players are doing. Uh, follow some of your favorite streamers, see what they're up to. Uh, of course, there's some that, that prioritize hitting Mythic uh, more so than others. And, you know, stay up to date. Uh, read articles about things that are people are saying. Uh, have a, a good thumb on the metagame of what's happening in Limited. This Limited format especially has been all over the place. So that's my two cents on it. Do you two have anything to add?
0: That's very well put. Uh, the only thing I would add is, um, you know, when you mentioned trying to, to kind of handle the drift by not playing because of the, the way that wins and mm. losses don't, don't add up. That's not Ben saying, stop playing Limited once you hit Mythic. It's... If you care about staying in the top 1200, maybe switch to traditional <laughs> once you get there because traditional at the time of this recording uh doesn't have a ranked queue, so you know, you can still you can keep playing and you can play best of 3, which I think is arguably better than best of 1 anyway, and don't have to worry about the drift uh or losses affecting you in that, in that aspect.
2: Mm. Uh, just one thing to add. I think that this month because uh, the next invitational is in sealed, the drift is much quicker. So um I calculated everything I got into my top 500 in mythic and stayed there and calculated I'm probably going to end up around a thousand but already today I'm like almost 1100 so I'll have to crack a draft tomorrow and um, hope to get two wins in a row and just move myself out of the danger zone um so it's a bit different and don't draft tilted that's a good advice because that's how you lose rank uh when you had a bad day just just figure out it's a bad day and it's also like interesting if you get to mythic very early you can switch to best of three and you actually have better players playing it so it's much more interesting to play best of three you might win less but um Mm. if you're in for the winning i would recommend playing best of three in the early days of the month if you're interested in playing interesting drafts with uh, against stronger opponents in best of three then play it at the end of the format when everyone switches to best of three
1: Mm. Yeah, great points. I should have mentioned that one of my goals is to hit that top twelve hundred. So, like what Zach mentioned, is what I'll do. Uh, I'll try to hit it midway through the month, and then I'll put a pause on my ranked play, and I'll just start grinding some of those best of three traditionals. I think I might actually fall out of it this month. Um, I'm last I checked, I was at like thirteen hundred because I hit I, I hit very early this month, and the uh, you're you're right. I also noticed that the the drift this month was a bit higher, thanks to you know, this upcoming sealed, but. I don't know if I've got time this weekend, I'll try to power back into the top 1200, but I don't know. It's my birthday weekend. I might might just like hang out with my family instead. There's always next month.
0: I was thinking too, Ben, I haven't talked to you about this yet, but it it might be cool to, (laughs) if neither of us are playing in the event, try to stream it somehow, like, like commentate on maybe some of the folks in the discord or something. I don't know Uh, more. We could talk about that later, but just a thought.
1: Yeah. Cool idea. Actually, now that I think of it, I think the last month's tournament is coming up this month. I guess I'll be doing that instead. (laughs) Oh
0: well.
2: It's uh, on Saturday, yeah, standard. Wow. I already Uh-oh. refreshed my mono red because I'm not going to figure out how to play Sultai Ultimatum.
1: Mm, I'm probably going to play mono white. I was toying around with that earlier, and I like it a little bit more than mono red. Uh, I think, uh, I- I'm still not settled on the build yet. There's the hyper one drop build that plays the uh, Anthem effects, and then there's also the life gain, which I found just obliterates mono red. So I, I think I'm going to see where the meta shakes out. I might try to game it a little bit uh, I do think aggro is going to be the place to be to kind of respond to this this Soltai ultimatum problem that we're seeing.
2: So I actually was thinking probably anti-aggro is the place to be, but I'm just not going to be bothered. I just want to play, maybe win one or two games and um, get a couple of gems for my collection. <laughs> and if not, then, uh, you know, there's always a very random ch- chance that I will just pick um, just one drop, two drop, three drop every game and um, Embercleave to finish it off and uh, spike it into the seven win territory. I don't expect it, but at least I'm going to give myself a chance, you know? It's a shot to nothing in my case.
1: (laughs) Yeah, totally. So one more question here. Batwheels asks, how do you decide what to discard? So a pretty, pretty general question here, but a great one. So I think an initial answer would be it depends on what point of the game. So if this is turn two, maybe you're discarding to an Elder Fang Disciple. It's often right to just pitch your most expensive card. Uh, I had this exact same thing happen, so I just ditched, like, the 7-drop giant. Because it's so long and so I'm going to be casting that, it's not going to be affecting the board anytime soon, unless it was something inter- integral to my game plan. Like, for example, if Coma is your most expensive card, maybe, maybe don't ditch that one quite as soon. Uh, but remember, a 10-mana spell that says you win the game just is useless if you never get to cast it. So if that's not actually going to be what helps you win the game, then that's fine to discard. Of course, then, in the late game, this flips. So in Callheim, I found it useful to hold an extra land in your hand, just because there's a few solid common discard effects uh, in Skull Raid and the Disciple. So in the late game, uh, the more lands that you have, slash the fewer that you still need, uh, the better discarding those lands can be. Otherwise, whatever your lowest impact card is at that time, maybe a one drop or two drop that you just top deck late.
0: Yeah,
2: I mean, it's such a difficult decision uh, what to discard, and you know the, most of the time, the first First moment that you can use it in the game is uh, during mulliganing, because practically mulliganing is discarding one card, you have to decide it. And I found it that, you know, I'm I'm not a very good person in planning. I'm rather chaotic in terms of my gameplay. So uh, for me, um, when I get to discard something, this gives me a great moment to pause and plan three turns ahead. What am I going to do and then discard what doesn't fit to the plan for the next three turns that I find is the best plan. So um, if you don't have, an uh, you know, you don't want to have solid rules about because sometimes you want to pitch a line, sometimes you want to pitch a creature, just sit down and think what am I going to do on next turn, two turns away, and what is the best thing I can do and what what, what doesn't fit into that picture, basically.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to sum it up. Oh. Well,
1: let's get into our main topic. So again, welcome, Zyrgovic. We're happy to have you on the show. We don't get guests on too often, so it's always a, a special occasion for Zach and I. So... How would you describe yourself in the, the, the limited community? Uh, what's what's your game? What, what, what are you here for?
2: I don't have game. I'm, I'm, I'm retired. I, I'm old and uh, my game is gone, so I can do what I want. So I like analyzing data. <laughs> I like looking at trends. And um, I managed to get myself a sweet job, let's call it, um, uh, to help the guys at 17Lands to, um, to look at their data and to try to figure out You know, from, from small things, which cards are best in the particular format to larger things. Are there any long held conceptions in magic that maybe don't work very well anymore, um, when to mulligan, how often you should mulligan, uh, why you should mulligan and, and things like that. So we're going from different angles, trying to look at the data and because it's such an open field right now, because no one did those kind of big analytics on, on, on draft data. We can basically pick our questions and just figure it out, move on to the next one. Then it's really fun.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to, so kind of just uh, to give the listener a little bit of an idea of what, what we're planning for the rest of this episode, we're going to do a short Q&A with Sirkovitz here, um, similar in style to what we did with Marshall. If you heard that episode prior, we we trimmed the, the list of questions down a bit because we want to give Sirkovitz more time to talk about that that uh, 17 lands analysis, uh, as he was just mentioning. So let's just jump into the Q&A here. First up, what was your first experience with Magic? As uh, you alluded to earlier, that you had uh, some some glory days.
2: Like, how am I supposed to even remember that? It was <laughs>
0: 1997. I mean, I honestly do
2: remember cracking my first pack. I was summer, 97. Uh, we were in the uh, high school uh, student exchange with Germany in... Dortmund, I think. And uh, we were a bit bored with my friend and we went to the shop and they had those cards and I had no idea what they are, but um, decided that, oh, that looks like something I might be interested in. I was deep into fantasy reading and uh, was visiting conventions for that particular reason. I never bumped into magic, but I bought myself a pack. I think it was fifth edition. And I remember the only card, the only card I remember from that pack was some kind of generic seven mana seven six uh, worm, <laughs> and I thought, wow, that must be pretty powerful. It's seven six, while the other things are two two and one ones. <laughs> <clears throat> So yeah, classic uh, rookie mistake. And um, and then I started buying more packs. My friend never started playing; he just played in the on the bus coming back from the student exchange. And then he just became bored with it. And I started playing quite a lot then obviously I had a younger brother who was not supposed to play the game but obviously started so uh, we had a lot of playtesting at home and 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 from then we moved into playing proper tournament and then going gps and uh, and then I moved out from my country and I moved to a place where I didn't know anyone and stopped playing for 11 years so I, I think I finished 2005 and then I restarted when arena hit they sent me this email would you like the free heroin? You addict person, <laughs> um, and of course, heroin was in the form of Magic Arena, and uh, that's where I we started. Uh, and I think that I installed Arena, and a week later, I was on the pre-release for Dominaria. So yeah, Very that nice. went quick.
0: You you qualify, you won a PTQ in your past too, didn't you?
2: Yeah, I I did qualify for a Pro Tour, which was um, hilarious because. The Pro Tour is the only tournament I ever played in extended format. I don't know if you remember extended, but it was like modern before modern. I never played it. I never had the cards. I qualified for a Pro Tour in Houston, Texas. So I went there and luck- luckily, luckily I had a family in, in in Texas for some very, very weird reason. Yeah, that is lucky. <laughs> um, yeah, my, my, my grandmother's sister was liberated by American soldiers from, uh, from a work camp. Ah. Uh. She didn't speak a word in English. She fell in love with the soldier and she moved with him to Texas and then wow. had eight children with him. So I had like a massive family there that I never met. So I thought, okay, I'm going to Houston. They're just like two hours drive from Houston. I'm just going to go there earlier and, and meet with them. That's wild. Which was a blessing because, of course, when I moved to the my four-in-the-morning flight, I forgot my deck. So, uh, yeah, I went to for <laughs> pro- forgetting my quite expensive Reanimator deck. Um, and then... I was there a week before, so they managed to send it via courier and I got it. Um, oh man, uh, It wow. was misconstructed, I made mistakes. I mean, I still went 4-3 on that Pro Tour. I beat Pat Chapin in the last round. Wow. So I have a 100% <laughs> Pro tour record against the Hall of Famer. But um, <laughs> that was probably like the last last big thing. I mean, I dated GP several times and I was like an, almost in top 16 twice you can nice, read it tw- nice. i was 17th i was 17th twice
1: <laughs> oh man which which is sad
2: because that's 250 quid that um, yeah. uh, missed my way but um um so yeah i, I played at a decent level but you know i never never approaching pro levels but approaching like a solid grinder levels you know like regional end boss or s-
1: things like that very cool and now you can make bank from arena tournaments from the comfort of your own home <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly at my age you don't want to go out to the wild it's dangerous there you can <laughs> break a hip when you fall or something
1: no cross-country travel or, or dangerous uh, hip endangerments necessary
2: that's true i mean i went to two gps after restarting but they were all in uk where i live right now and it was still a pain because you know i have to abandon my family and go to play cards there my wife is not thrilled let's put it mildly <laughs>
0: I believe that. My wife isn't so, thrilled when I spend a couple hours at the computer doing it.
2: <laughs> no, I, I have a secret plan. I will teach my daughter how to play. Then she can go to GPs and then I can have a father and daughter trip. There you go. Uh,
0: that,
2: that, yeah, that's that's good. different. Then, then, then she's the one that's participating in family life while we're going to <laughs> yeah, Barcelona. Then, then she she has to
0: learn and... She has to go to GPs too. Oh, or... no, no, no. no she...
2: <laughs> we're, we're talking about a hopeless case there. We're, we're, she's, a, she's a great person, but she's just not
1: a gamer. That's that's it. That's fair. That's fair. So next up, what was your first favorite magic card? My first favorite,
2: Cursed Scroll. That was the time. You know, like mm. my first first proper competitive decks were mono red aggros because that was easy thing to do. And Cursed Scroll was just such a great card because it provided that very down-to-earth, uh, aggressive deck, you know, mock Fanatics and Burn Spells. It provided them with the long game. Because even if you run out of your creature, you still had the Curse Scroll and you ping them for two every turn. Curse if people don't know and they shouldn't, because why would they? It's a one mana artifact. For three mana and a tap, you can name a card, then opponent reveals one card from your hand at random. If it's the named card, you can deal two damage to any target. It's a good card. Even for today's standards, it would be pretty, pretty busted. So yeah, you basically run out of your hand and at some stage, you were just drawing a card, using the scroll, playing the card. And that was it. Sweet. Just for the last six damage.
0: Yeah, that sounds awesome. That said, you've mentioned a couple of times so far that you prefer aggro-type archetypes. But if you could, describe your your magic play style in one word. Chaotic. I love it.
2: <laughs> um, or unfocused, depending.
0: Do I have to expand on it, or is this one word
2: you, enough? <laughs> you're welcome to, if you'd like. So I'm actually not even an aggro player per se. I'm a toolbox decks player. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's and it's mainly because so the other card I could have told you about was Survival of the Fittest slash Recari Nightmare combo, which was mm. something I really loved. And it's because I don't plan well. And if you don't plan well, you better have answers ready when they are needed. And that's why toolbox decks are great. I, I like playing Amulet Titan for that reason, because you just can search for the land that you need for that particular situation that you did not predict because you were too lazy to think about what the opponent is doing, and solve it the problem as emerge. I, I use that strategy in life. I use that strategy in magic. It's not a great strategy. I would not recommend it to anyone. <laughs> but hey, if you do that, you better come prepared to it with something that can solve it. And that's why I like toolbox decks. I also like tempo, where I basically have solutions to every problem in spells and aggressive things to not to have to be forced to make many decisions because the more decisions you're facing, the more mistakes you will make in my case, at least. Yeah, every so time I chaotic, try to
1: play... Every time I try to play a blue deck, that uh, like a deck that's you know an actual control deck where there's just a lot of interesting decisions you have to make, I find myself making a good number of mistakes. Uh, it, that, that's one of the, my weaknesses that I'm aware of in Magic. But you know, I just play the green deck instead. Whatever, whatever green deck or, or you know turning your creature sideways deck. Yeah, I I, I, uh, I can especially relate to the combo or um to the uh, the toolbox as, as, aspect of this. Um, one of my all time favorite limited decks. Or, uh, construct the decks rather was uh, a homebrew green white toolbox deck, uh, back in Shadows Over Innistrad. Using, I-, I was so desperate for toolbox that I was playing, uh, Tamiyo's Journal, the one that made clues and let you sacrifice clues to two different cards. N- nonsense.
2: Yeah, that, that that sounds like something that uh, I would definitely. My, my first, like, deck that I crafted for the nationals that I thought was good, but, um, I fell short of having some cards, was a deck that was basically like modern style, never run out of things to do kind of deck. It had Wraths of God, it had Armageddon's, it had this, it had combo, you know, Sylvan Library? It just like allows you to draw extra two cards um, during your turn and then you sort of brainstorm each turn. Mm-hmm. Or you can keep those cards by paying two life for each of them. And then you had a Pursuit of Knowledge which you could skip drawing a card to put a counter on it. When you put three counters on it, you could sacrifice it and draw seven cards. So you drew the three cards from Sylvan Library, but then you skipped drawing them so you didn't have to pay life, and you put three counters on the pursuit, and in one turn you drew seven cards, so you just basically refilled every turn.
1: Wow. And then
2: I used Grindstone to mill people out, and it was like uh, <laughs> Ger- Gerald's wisdom that you gained two life for for each card in your hand, and you just like ended up on 40 life, and they had no lands, no creatures, no nothing. <laughs> oh my god. Was, Sounds man, like my kind of deck. Uh, yeah, but I mean, uh, it, it was fun was fun never again
1: (laughs) (laughs) next up if you were a potato how would you want to be prepared and served what do you mean if (laughs) (laughs) no um i would like to
2: be a potato gratin a la savoyaise with um with reblechon cheese uh, because i like to be unctuous you know I like my... Because potato is quite a boring ingredient. So I would be a boring ingredient. I would like to dress myself up into something interesting. And I think like lamb stock, an oven, lots of cream, lots of butter, and Robleson cheese is something that would make my boring potato-ness more interesting. And I would want that, you know, for myself. If I sacrifice myself to feed someone, I want to do it in style.
0: (laughs) That sounds delicious. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. So if... this, This is more of a format specific question, but if you could make any changes to any single change or multiple changes, whatever you you feel, this is your time to jump on a soapbox. If you could make any changes to the call time as a limited format, what would it be and why?
2: Okay. I mean, that is definitely an interesting question. Um, there are multiple changes I would want to do to that format. And that's probably because I'm not a good game designer and the guys that do the expansions are way better than me, but... What I miss in this format is good two drops and some colors just have very bad collection of two drops. I would like to make more of it. The problem is that probably they don't want to do it because it will compete with Fortel, mm-hmm. and that's why some two drops have been weakened so that you won't sacrifice your turn two to play a good uh, on rate creature. You'd rather use the new fancy mechanic and uh, get more attracted to it. So that's probably why it isn't. I think that this set tries to be like Ikoria, but it's not Ikoria, and that's what I don't like about it. Mm. And first thing that is causing it is, Ikoria had this amazing set of synergies. You know, you could draft a normal deck, but then you can have a re- reanimator package with the uh, back for more and, and the other one for five mana. You could have some package of vigilant creatures. You could have a menace package. You can have this sacrifice theme with, um, uh, with threatened kind of effects. And here they have bits and bobs of that. So for instance, there is the 2 for flyer that when you gain, when, when your life total is over 30, is it? Or no, 27, all your creature gets plus two, plus two. And this would be something nice if it had a bit more support, if it had a, like a mild life uh, gain theme like a couple of spells that can gain like eight life all of a sudden built into some kind of a mediocre creature, but it it misses. So you can draft this card, but you can rarely build it around it. I don't think that there is a single proper build around... um type of deck in this format they are all rather straightforward and you can have artifact sub or uh, equipment sub or you can have go white sub but there's no one card like uh, Dovin's security when you will build around this one particular card and uh, and it can make something obscene but it also changes the way you draft and i think that this is slightly missing in this format because snow is such an overarching thing which leads me to my third complaint snow is such an overarching theme and uh, there's so much fixing that you basically can just stick to snow, play good stuff, sort of Theros style, and this also drains resources from any other decks because you can go for an interesting blue-black control. There's a good chance that people will just steal all the best cards that you want because they will be fitting in snow anyway because they can fix anything into it. You know, blood and snow, no problem. I'll just take it. Narfi, Narfi is not even the best card in 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 its own color pair because it will be so much better in the kind of some kind of a snow pile. So. These are the sort of like first three things I think that the format is missing out on a bit. And I do like my build arounds. I, I, I love the Korea in the early stages when you can just first pick a companion and just try to build something mental around it.
1: Uh, it's a great point that you mentioned about uh, how this is not at all like uh, Dovin's acuity. And I think the first card that comes to my mind is Path of the World Tree. Um, but it doesn't actually really change the way you're drafting, does it? Uh, you're just putting Path to the World Tree in the snow deck that you're already making. It's not like this is a card that says, I'm going to take some work, but you're going to get paid off. This is a card that says, I take virtually no work because you were doing it anyway, and you're going to get paid off.
2: I sometimes put a snow-covered plains when I have a Path to the World Tree just because I probably missed my white source for the activation, but that's the yeah. only really pain I have to go through, and I still can use that snow deck to activate my Ice hide Troll or something. So it's not a big cost. It's not a build around. It's a card that fits in well into the archetype already. And it only also makes it better. And it does ex- exactly the things that you want to do with it. So it's not a build around. It's a very good reward for being in there. That also gets reward from you trying to be there in the first place. And is going criminally late in, uh, on Arena as well.
0: Well, awesome. Thank you for answering all those questions. As a nice little bit of insight from you as well on on some format uh updates potentially um so we're gonna move into now the 17 lands kind of snow deck analysis one of the things that really caught our attention that wanted us to you know outside of a lot of the other articles you've released um recently you posted uh, an article for 17 lands on the snow archetype as a whole and a lot of analysis that went into all the different types of snow decks so we kind of wanted to pick your brain of course if you haven't The listener, if you haven't uh, read this article yet, the link to it will be in the episode description and in the the show notes as well. So you can see what we're on about with that. But uh, it's a fantastic read. Definitely suggest giving that a look. There's a lot of data there to comb through. And hopefully we're going to get a little bit of insight into that data right now. Yeah, so I think
1: uh, Zach and I, I'd say, are both STEM nerds. uh, And I think a good number of listeners maybe as well. So when I first saw this article, I was blown away by the significance of it and and how much time and and effort had gone to this so fantastic work on your part on this Um, and of course for for other people that contributed to it as well Uh, now before we dive right into the article I want to get a bit of background about 17 lands so what is 17 lands people in the magic community have been hearing about it it's been growing in popularity what is it what does the software do Uh, I downloaded it because someone told me to but what am I really doing
2: Uh, it's basically a tracker but um You have many magic trackers. This one has a slightly different philosophy. So first of all, it's custom made for limited players. Uh, You won't be able to track your constructed games because uh, (laughs) um, limited is superior, obviously. Of course. Um, Therefore, the name 17 Lens as the customary number of Lens you should put into your any deck. And of course, my first analysis uh, for them was to show that actually playing 16 is better in... uh, in, I think it was... too many jokes have been had, but um, um, it basically tracks your games and looks at how you drafted your draft, what other people do, how do they play their draft, how you play their draft. So basically it has a record of every game you played and you can look play by play what happened in each turn. So you can track your own mistakes and maybe find some things that you would have done otherwise uh, uh, were you in that same situation again. So it gives you like a whole toolbox of analyzing your own data. And at the same time, um, the guys that run it, because I have to be very clear, I'm a contributor collaborator. I, I work with the guys, I know them very well, but I never touched any code of that uh, thing with one finger that they are doing because um, the whole trick is to go into the arena logs and arena logs, every well, quite a lot of data and they had to figure it out by trial and error, what everything does. And they expanded from just a simple tool that shows you a metagame and Limited, which color combinations are popular, um, how late do cards go. And they went the full length to actually analyzing. I'm, I'm, I'm just looking at the play-by-play data, and I can check how beneficial it is to foretell something on turn two. And I can just look at the big data set with 100,000 games in it. And I look at all of them that had a foretell on turn two and I can see the outcome. I can see how the game developed. So we're just entering like a completely new level of um, data analysis that I'm pretty sure that the next couple of years will bring a lot of content based on looking at particularities of, um, of our habits and what we do wrong and what we don't. Um, so it's done by dedicated people. And um, the important thing is that everyone that, does anything for 17 lands believes that this data belongs to the people. Mm. So it's not a tracker that, um, we want to track something, get your data, use this data for our own benefit. And then you can see your own analytics, but nothing more than that. This is basically to aggregate the community wide data and, and, and then try to share it with people because we think that it's cool to share the data with people. So yeah. hope Yeah. That's, that's, enough awesome. for you.
0: Yeah, that, that's huge. Cause you know, as, um, as somebody who's analyzing data, right the the more uh, samples you have, right the larger your population, the more accurate your your results are, right You can make more significant kind of statements on on what you're analyzing. Oh
2: yeah, definitely this is the this is the thing that <clears throat> this is the thing that we will always lose to pundits in terms of uh, data analytics and magic because we will need a week to get data, a couple of days to analyze it, a couple of days to write it down and then release it. We're already approaching the second week of the format when most people are just like, well, I I did my drafts, I'm I'm tired of it, I'm not doing anything else. Well, a pundit comes on the day one and says, well, I think that this card is good, this card is good. And don't get me wrong, most of the time they're right. It's just that they're right for good intuition and whenever they are wrong, just the world moves on. It doesn't matter that much. When we want to try to analyze it in a proper systematic way and then see... What common misconceptions do pundits make, for instance, or what common misconceptions do players make? And uh, this thing takes time and we just are always like a couple of weeks behind the news cycle. But it's still, I think that for the the, the blessing is that if it was in the real world, um, it would be tragic because that's what science is basically doing. We do our analysis and we do our um, uh, experiments and then someone comes on TV and tells you, well, I think that this is better. And you don't have the data yet, so people just listen to the first person that goes on TV and claims something sensational. Hmm. But luckily in Magic, lots of people are quite data-oriented and they respect um, the data. So even if we're a bit late, we still might get some interesting insights to some people that are willing to listen.
1: Yeah, Yeah, very cool. So I wanted to kind of highlight the fact that 17 lands is also, like you mentioned, a full draft tracker and a full gameplay tracker. So I think it's just absurdly cool that uh, I mean, on top of all this other stuff, if I wanted to, if I had a game where I wasn't sure about a play, I can just pull up 17 lands, go to the, uh, the draft log, click on my game that I was playing and send it to Zach and be like, Hey dude, do you think I made the right play here? Yeah,
2: Yeah. no, exactly. I mean, I did it several times already that I felt that probably I could have won this particular game. If on the particular fork of decision-making, I would have turned the other way. And I just went back, I looked through my, um, data. And, um, I analyzed it myself. I asked a couple of friends for, for an opinion, and then we came to the conclusion I made a mistake, but you know, lesson learned next time. I mean, I, I want to say that next time I won't make the same mistake, but, um, I'm not the kind of a person <laughs> would fool me once. So, uh, I might do it again, but you know, maybe third time, maybe third time I'll catch it quicker. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> and, learning happens eventually. Right.
2: And you know, don't underestimate the possibility of making some really cool turns and then showing them to your friends, because they can still watch the replay. You force oh, them to yeah. watch the replay. Maybe we should Absolutely. make, like, a capacity to make it into gifts, so that you can actually... <laughs> I think I had a, I had a turn in, in Ravnica Allegiance uh, recently, where on turn four, on two lands, I managed to get, I think, eight mana, draw four cards, kill two of the opponent's creature, and hit them for six.
1: Wow. I don't um, need a replay of that.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it included Priest of Forgotten Gods, uh... Uh, and sacrificing two of those uh, one ones that deal one damage to something, recurring them and replaying them—it's—it's it's like it was an insane turn that uh, oh, that's it, sick. did a lot of damage. But uh, yeah, you know, you can show those cool things. Yeah, I, I, and also, I mean, the fact that we get the gameplay data is broadening our capability of doing analytics so much. Because again, like, how important is it to play your two drop? How important it is to um to have the right ratio of mana costs on your opening hand.
1: Mm.
2: Because that will be a you know that that's, that's some things that I'm planning to look at like for instance how often when your first um uh, like your lowest casting cost card in the hand is 3 how often are you going to win those games compared to something when you have a two drop to play. Of course sometimes you will draw into the two drop but if you have enough sample size you can actually um calculate the the you know the the cost that you're dealing with and then you can compare the cost of that to the cost of mulliganing so is it i don't know if you guys play golf but um uh in golf you have those things called percentage plays where you just sometimes make a shot that's not a spectacular but has a lower chance of failure so what is the percentage shot when i have only a three drop is it to keep the hand and hope to draw a two drop or hope that the opponent is not super aggressive or is it to mulligan and hope for the two drop but maybe not drawing uh, a good hand again and uh, yeah so these kind of things we'll be able to calculate within the next half a year let's say yeah. Let's give ourselves reasonable
0: bet. <laughs> yeah, and, and huge shout out to Hululu, one of our patrons who actually worked on on the code for 17 lands uh, for that game. I mean game
2: Hululu not only worked, I mean, he basically figured yeah, it's, out it's how his. to do the
0: game uh, analytics. It's it's amazing awesome. what
2: he did. I mean, uh, generally, Hululu is an amazing human being and um, quite crafty with, uh, with extracting the information. He should be an interrogator,
0: maybe. <laughs> yeah, we've had some some interactions with him via uh, our, our coaching sessions. And yeah, absolutely. Great guy. But isn't he one of your founding pa- patrons? He is. Right? Yeah, yeah. He's yes. one of our founders.
1: Much love to all our founders. And ooh, that's awesome. Uh, I, I wanted to mention real quick, like from a philosophical point, um, I spent a lot of time thinking about the philosophy of learning. Uh, and in fact, that's something I want to study for a future episode. Maybe come up with my, my own heuristic finally to crack into the... Uh, the, the big leagues of magic content creating with our very own draft chaff heuristic or, or something of the sort but in considering how this actually helps magic players learn I, I was thinking a lot about the scientific learning process that physicists have used for their you know the, the entire history of the world uh, where you observe something that you can't explain uh, you come up with ideas for what's going on you test those ideas and then you uh, see if your experiments match the results that you expected. Uh, and then you kind of cycle back from there. So I think what this represents for magic players is the best possible observations we can possibly make. This, uh, this level of data analysis is going to allow us to come up with uh, hypotheses, if you will, that we otherwise could never have come up with. So, for example, we're about to get into some of the different archetypes of snow in Caldheim Limited, uh, archetypes that have become uh, evident thanks to this data analysis. And now from this, we can look and see, well, if I draft the deck like this, I would expect it to do well. Is this going to match my prediction? See how the outcome will be. And then if I draft a deck that uh, is not like this, we can see how that lines up with the hypothesis. So I see this as a, an incredible step in, in data analysis uh, for, for limited magic in general.
2: Yeah, I mean, just a little bit of a stab at you there. But um, this type of data, and I think that uh, I'm half kidding here, but uh, this is something Magic data is more for biologists than for physicists because mm-hmm. the data is so chaotic. No, the data is so chaotic. I mean, uh, the physics data is sometimes so neat that you can't believe it with your bare eyes. You know, mm. I, I've I've dealt with my. I'm a biologist myself, so I've I've dealt with very messy data sets um, in the past. And uh, when a physicist looks at it, there there are two types of physicists in my in my professional experience in terms of approach to biology those that think it's trivial and uh, they try to do it because it's so easy that they they could do it without any preparations these are rubbish and the ones that say (laughs) oh my god what a mess but it might be interesting and these are one of the most amazing biologists uh, that ever have walked the earth are actually physicists that moved to biology because of the complexity of the challenge because of the noisy data sets that we produced so basically Mm. you grow the same thing five times and uh, maybe four out of five it works and you can see there's this i don't even know if it's a real quote from einstein but uh, attributed to einstein that when you do the experiment twice and expect a different result you must be crazy not in biology in biology (laughs) That's very much the case. You want to do it multiple times so you actually can be sure of your findings. And I think that um, Magic the Gathering datasets are a bit like that because on top of random, well, not, not random, but on top of the differences in the deck builds, you have difference in level of play. You have difference in play style. You have difference in plan that the players are using. You have the just the random thing of what you drew in the particular deck in a particular game. And you also have the different level of opponent quality. So all of these things create a lot of noise in your data sets. And to look at it, and for already a long time I've been thinking about it, biology framework uh, in terms of analytics is pretty good because we have to deal with the same problem. We have like thousands of different species of organisms living in an ecosystem. You have hundreds of them interacting. You have uh, changing environmental conditions. You have uh, small Small changes that seasonality, different uh, different light uh, exposure between the experiments that you run in July and uh, October, all those things like are slightly confounding. But when you put them all together, stack them up, it sometimes can become a, quite a mess. And our methods are usually reflected in that that they basically try to smooth this mess out and limit it. And that's why we use this sort of biology or microbiology framework for analysis of the card data.
0: That's awesome. Let's so let's let's move into the the snow. Uh, analysis aspect of things can you kind of before we get into the the actual archetypes themselves could you briefly kind of walk us through what is your process for even like handling this data like what you do to get from a massive messy data set to a nicely written article that has you know actual points and like a, a you know a nice way to read through it and then kind of on top of that can you walk through anything that really surprised you about the different the different snow archetypes that you talked about in your article Okay, so
2: um so first thing that I always do is I go to viral misnomer who is the guy that is running um, 17 lands and I said please please could you generate me a table that I can open in Excel because I'm rubbish <laughs> in your Json analysis that um, you're so good at and then usually he does it very quickly because he's an amazingly organized person and I get my three 400 megabytes of numbers then I play with the data on my own account organize it uh, i delete what i don't need or i won't look into it to limit the computing time of everything and then then i basically um start playing around with what can be done so i look at some basics mulligan rate average casting cost of particular type of decks just playing around with the data because you never know maybe there's something that is obviously significant uh, that you missed from other formats and just, just just like to explore it a bit but um for this one I, I was fighting with this idea for like months already, I think since Teros possibly. Um, so my job as I'm a microbial ecologist, I look at the ecosystems of bacteria and I compare them. And then I look at some trends between those uh, ecosystems of bacteria based on experimental work. So I'm not going to the wild and I'm not studying bacteria that live in the wild. I take some bacteria, put them in the semi repetitive or semi-organized fermenter system where I can control the um, environment as much as I can. And then I put some treatment. So let's say I feed half of my communities one thing, half of the other communities other thing. Then I look at the composition of the species by sequencing their DNA. And I use a mathematical framework to sort of see what are the impacts of changing this feeding regime on the composition of the bacterial communities. And that's certain moment it sort of struck me that well archetype is a sort of ecosystem cards live in that ecosystem we put them more or less frequently some cards are more popular than others just very much like species so each card can be a sort of species like sarov of is a wolf so it's clearly a species but uh, so is beyond uh, the multiverse um so i can treat them in the same way i basically can use the same methods that i use at work to analyze the cards and I was sort of toying with this idea, but I never had the right data set to do it. And I, I got this data set up from Kaltheim, from viral from Misnomer, and I looked at it and I said, well, okay, we have 4,000 decks. I wonder if I can plot them. I just wanted to like, look if I can compare them. And I'm not going to go deep into maths and not because I don't have time, but because I'm not a math person, and I would leave explaining math to the other thing, but to to experts on that. But what basically happens is that you put in the composition of each deck, put a lot of decks into uh, the system, and it converts each relation between two decks into a number. So you have a sort of like a distance table. The the only problem is that uh, it's in multiple dimensions, and no one can think in multiple dimensions. So you have mathematical tricks to convert them into sort of two-dimensional space where each deck is one dot, and how far from each other they are uh, is how different from each other they are. So I could put all those like this. I I think I put 4,000 snow decks into a system, and it calculated, okay, these decks are close to each other in terms of composition. These are far from each other. So um, I can say that probably these are similar. They have similar color combinations, and uh, I could plot them together. And I said, oh, okay, that worked quite well. I have the massive plot with 4,000 points. So where do we go from there? And I thought, Okay, if they are close together, I could sort of try to look at the win rates of a deck and its closest neighbors. So I made it, and this took like two days of painful, painful job because I'm rubbish with good data formats. So I had to do it in Excel, but basically I sort of made a table where each deck I selected it's 10, 20 or 30 closest neighbors. And then I looked at the average win rate of the neighbors. So basically, if you're a good deck and your neighbors also are having a high win rate, um, I uh, colored it in a different way. And I did it for the 100 decks that had the most successful neighborhoods, let's call it like that. And based on that, I saw that actually those decks cluster quite well into small pockets of winning, w- more winning decks. And from that point, it was quite easy because if I have pockets where the decks are more winning, I can try to start looking at the composition of the deck, what's inside, what makes them. Um... What makes them so successful and when i was doing that i noticed that actually these clusters also represent color person color triplets quite well so if i have a one big cluster of uh, decks that are close to each other together and i see all of them are actually sultai i said well i not only found the decks that are winning but i know that these are the winning sultai archetypes and yeah, if i look awesome. at their composition that's probably something that makes sultai tick and this is this is Scary how similar it is to my actual day job. So, um, <laughs> but that—that's what I do with bacteria. I mean, I look at the composition. And I say, okay, all the treatments that were given this thing are having this particular species in much higher abundance. Therefore, this thing has something to do with metabolizing this particular compound that I added to my feed. Mm. And um, so, yeah, I'm basically doing my day job at night <laughs> using magic cards. And but I—I I got more reads from. Uh, I got more reads from the snow paper than most of my science paper, which is <laughs> happy, but also sort of sad.
1: <laughs> I mean, just taking a look at the article, I, I think um, one of the most significant graphs that, that I see here is your wind heat map with the snow decks and then the accompanying best snow decks. Uh, so for those that, that uh, are checking out the article, it's a, a little less than halfway through, where you can see very clearly grouped these uh, these decks by color combination. Um, which I think is just just awesome to see. So, to spend a little bit of time on these decks, um, I guess we can start with uh, with Simic. Is there anything you noticed about the Simic deck that, that might go against conventional wisdom? Anything interesting, unique?
2: Um, I think that you know, Simic is. Sort of like when you look at all the cards, and I mentioned most of them, it, it, it looks like quite a straightforward deck. It's it's not fancy at all. I mean, people think somehow got the concept that uh, those snow decks have to be multicolored and dirtly, and then they try to splash anything. But actually, those successful Simic decks, they have quite little splash. Hmm. And um, they can splash because one of the most common cards that they use is Spirit of, Spirit of Aldegaard. Uh, But it probably is not very useful for them to splash too much. And they rather focus on on, on particular themes that uh, their color pair is good. They have, for instance, quite a lot of changelings. Mm. Uh so the one of the most common cards is Ma- Mistwalker. And that's probably not only because with Mistwalker is a good card, but also because Mistwalker is an easy card to draft. If you want a Mistwalker, you'll probably get it in a draft. Mm-hmm. Lots of them will have Spirit of Older so they want to be quite uh, snow heavy. They have like average seven ish snowlands per deck, the successful ones. And they have average of like seven snow permanents inside of them but they have you know um other change things the tiara kin seekers uh, they have the uh, masked vandal Mor- morit Moriet is actually quite a, a lot present in those deck and it looks like a, a sort of like a mid-range deck it doesn't have a very good uh, early game and that's why one of the cards that appears quite a lot in them was bind the monster which you can use on early creature i think that people sometimes not all people, but I, I know at least some people that think it's like a good removal spell for late game, but it's actually terrible. This is a perfect card to play early, tap as 2-2, two, two, and make sure that you arrive in the mid-game with 14 life and not 10. Because mm. 14 life you might cope with, but four, 10 might be a bit too low already for you. And then it starts dropping bears, you know, Bergstriders, uh, your uh, mm-hmm. Lindworms, when you get to the higher mana uh, levels. Yeah. You know, you, you, it's a pretty good deck for Ice Hydro because you have those seven snow and probably you know a couple of other you know glittering frost or something and you all of a sudden you can have a troll that starts chipping in damage um so it's 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 a it's a snow deck but it's more streamlined than 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 i think the snow deck that exists in the um <clears throat> in the imagination of people mm. having said that they do splash but they don't splash excessively so they will have one two cars that are essential and i think that the from generally looking at all the snow decks svella is the card that um, is head and shoulders above anything and there's a good reason for it because it's an enabler it produces snow monoliths which are good for your snow decks and it's a payoff because once you get to 8 you can just start slamming her for uh, good card selection dropping threats removal and you I mean, it's 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 unstoppable once it once it gets going. And also, I mean, mm. even on, as an early drop, it's a two four four three mana, which is great defensively. This is the thing that you're missing. Sometimes you might not want to block with her, uh, but but if you need to, and if you need to gain some tempo from that, you can just take a gamble and 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 and, and use her as a as an early blocker. Mm. So you know, lots of lots of those things. But it will splash some things, but not excessively.
1: So have you found that the teamer decks, uh, if we, I guess, add red to these blue-green decks, have you found that those tend to be similar to the blue-green deck in overall composition?
2: Now, teamer decks that I found were teamer-teamer. They were predominantly blue-green, but they had, you know, like when we're talking about um, the Simic decks, not even all of them had any kind of splash. Some of them were pure uh, uh, Simic and very similar to the ones that had a splash. The other ones, they had like one two cards that they splashed. Timur decks, we're talking about, you know, four red mana sources, we're talking about um, four or five red cards. And, you know, you see you see already things that you would not put as a splash most of the time, like Ernie slays the Troll, mm. which is quite common in those decks. Obviously, you have Svela, because why not? And it looks like a ramp deck, sort of. Um, it does have quite a lot of those um, high-end uh, cards, like Ravenous Lindworm. So you basically want to ramp yourself into the late game you play glittering frost and i think almost every one of them had a glittering frost somewhere there mm. so you basically want to play maybe a two drop that this replaceable like you know glade, guardian glade walker or musk vandal early just to jump block and make a speed bump for the opponent ramp yourself with glittering frost and then start dropping the uh five drops and six drops to uh to sort of overcome the opponent and the good part of it is that the blue one can provide you with things like again Bergstrider, like behold the multiverse that will um that will stop the opponent from uh, from from getting in for more and also this is the first that like in simic you would not play uh path to the world tree but in Timur, you will and you very often will have like an odd source from another color you will have the glittering frost so you can actually activate it quite reliably there even though it's just a three color deck but it can use a, you know, it can use the power of path to the world tree Quite efficiently, and especially you know, I mean, it, in a deck that has striders, you want to have certainty that by turn five you have this blue mana or you have this uh, snow mana to to play it because otherwise the card is just trash.
0: Absolutely.
1: So to continue touching on the red green snow decks, uh, how does Jund fare in comparison to these other ones?
2: So yeah, I mean, th- this is a bit. I, I wrote Jund, but it's really a different flavor of a five color. Um, mm. So the Jund cluster that I analyzed, I called it Jund because it's Tertiary color is black, but it has most of the decks that uh, that were there in this cluster are five colors. And also, when when you look at the when you look at the graph, uh, junt and five color are actually quite close to each other in terms of uh, physical distance on the graph. So you mm, would expect yeah. that they might be more similar than, than 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 you would expect. I think that the why is it junt is because it, it it. I think that if I looked at the data, even black is not the most third most common mana source in that deck. However. It doesn't have that many spells from other colors. It's usually, again, a splash for things like Path of the World tree, but almost all of them did have the uh, Priest of the Haunted Edge, and I think that this is an important card for that particular archetype. Sorry. You basically have your red-green aggro package, and you make it stronger by adding this Priest, which is a very early blocker and later removal for uh, pushing through your damage. It can deal with the things that the snow decks don't deal very well like um flyers for instance it can remove mm-hmm. them quite easily because they usually don't have that much toughness so even on three lands you can easily ping them out and you can have the package of uh, your traditional green red aggressive cards that uh, become better with snow so i mean svela ice uh, ice hype troll i think sculptor of winter is pretty good in this uh um, archetype because you can you know turn to sculptor of winter into turn three path and maybe something else, maybe a Priest of Haunted Edge, so you can double spell it already on turn three, or you can play t- turn three Spirit of Alderguard and then get your mana up to the bigger things. And of course, what is good about those decks is that um, those cards do not show up in the analysis because they are too rare for that, but any good rare that fits your game plan that you open goes in because the cost is almost zero. That's why I can splash white, because if you open Kaya, you just put it in. Why not? Mm-hmm. If you open Burst of the Tiara, it just fits the deck. Okay, it's maybe more Simic, but you can still put it in there. You have the mana capacity for doing that. So the flexibility for, you know, uh, getting the good bombs, especially in pack three is is, is there. Oh, yeah, maybe one thing that has um, happened there quite a lot of those decks is that they can actually use the Grim Draugr quite well. Mm. And, you know, this, this is not a card that you will be thrilled to have in your deck but i played like a john D kind of um, snow deck and uh, i blocked a lindworm with my grim Drugger and killed it because you can hmm. so you know, yeah for a three drop killing a six six that's that's a good deal okay you have to invest some mana but most of the time in the late game in those decks because you ramp so much you play glittering frost you have so much mana that you don't know what to do with it and if if the worm is a problem then the Grunt Drogger can solve that problem. And if they are on low life, they have to double Drogger 3-2 and it kills two creatures, so, you know.
1: So taking a look at the Sultai area on your, your Best no deck wind map, uh, it looks like Sultai is a little bit further away than, than say, Jund or 5-color, uh, or even some of the, the, the more, um, like, blue-based ones. So uh, thoughts on that? What, what did you find with the Sultai lists?
2: Sultai so is what I think that, or at least what I hope that Wizard planned for having as a... I blue black control this is a a much more controlling archetype than uh than the other ones i described so far and um, this one will want to be a bit more dirty so this one is the this is exactly the deck where you want to put your pilfering hawk and narfi uh, the betrayer king uh into you want to use all this uh blue black synergies uh from snow but they are not good enough when you just put them in the blue-black because you don't have access to enough snowlands and you don't have uh, access to enough fixing and ramping. So you put the standard green package of Glittering Frost, um, um, maybe, you know, Sculptor of Winter, maybe, you know, mask Vandal to, to deal with any kind of thread that appears on the board that is not the creature that you can remove. Mm. And you just build, like, this kind of a grindy uh, Sulte deck. I think that this is an archetype I didn't find that... Um, LSV was talking about, uh, in limited resources was the, I'm looking for the color combination. Ah, red, black, blue. Come on. Which one is that? Grixis. Grixis. Yeah, exactly. He said that there's Grixis snow and I didn't find it in my data in the winniest winning, um, clusters doesn't mean it's not there it might just not be my analysis is not powerful enough to detect that particular cluster but oh, I think it's lsv is,
1: you know he can win with anything
2: that that is also true that something you have to keep in mind good players win with decks that you won't be able to win with i'm not taking you personally but us <laughs> humble mortals um yeah, yeah. but i think that this is this is very similar to what he described this is that instead of the red um uh, bolts and um and um, for Frostbite's package, it has instead the sort of green ramp uh, package and a uh, couple of big creatures that let you stabilize, like, again, Lindworm. As you can see, I mean, if you, if you read the article, quite a lot of those cards are appearing in multiple archetypes as the common things because they are good or they are available quite a lot. But uh, this one is definitely uh, the most grindy version of that Um uh, snow archetype. Also, I mean, this is the perfect perfect deck for Icebind Pillar. You just want to tap for multiple turns and, and and wait until you deploy something super
1: big. So you touched on the five color archetype a little bit already. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add to that, like the uh, the strictly five color? I guess you could call it.
2: Yeah, the the the, the most five color. I think that um, like first of all, you just want all the best cards um, mm. from the snow package. But when I say best cards. Oh, and also, maybe I should mention it, but both the Sultai version and the five-color versions were significantly heavier on Snowlands. You need, like, eight yeah. to nine Snowlands mm-hmm. to play this kind of deck successfully. When I'm talking about good cards in those uh, archetypes, I'm talking about every single card that lets you survive the early game. I'm mm-hmm. talking Demon Bolt. I'm talking Star of Pac-Mate. I'm talking um, uh, Path to the Tree that Trumps you. I'm talking Frostbites. Frostbites are great in this deck because they are both heavy in land, so it will do three damage reliably and also it can ping this tutu that uh, is annoyingly killing you while you try to you know assemble some kind of a majestic late game combo <laughs> priest of the haunted edge just perfect because uh, again early blocker later big removal yeah, Miss walker expect...
1: too that kind of thing
2: oh definitely definitely Miss walker is just a great card in my opinion it's, it ends has some really cool interactions that uh, that you can find later i mean did you know it's a dragon? So it makes your post uh, cheaper if you have the 2-2 with first strike. Hmm,
1: how uh, about
0: that?
2: Uh, yeah, no, no. I mean, I uh, I had I had a sort of like a Timur version that had also Magdadu, uh, the dwarven thing. So first of all, it was a dwarf, so it was a 2-4 all of a sudden. Second of all, <laughs> once I had my uh, shapeshifters produce a lot of uh, treasures, I could sacrifice them and find any other shapeshifter from my, changing from my deck because they oh, are dragons. Oh,
1: wow. Oh, that's so! I sweet. was putting
2: them on, and um, yeah, and then and then of course they made my post almost free, so I could like make a 5 fight dragon for uh, for two mana by, by attacking with the guy that cares for dragons and post. So yeah, mm. it, 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 there are some interesting interactions with Mistwalkers that maybe are under uh, appreciated. But again, um, this is the thing that in all those snow decks, from the analysis at least, it looks like you should be focusing on. Um, it's not as much the late game things, not as much the bombs. It's the capability of staying along with the game that makes them winning. I would rather have a snow deck with three frostbites and a couple of good early blockers and a Lindworm than to have a deck without those two drops, but with the Thorinplex and Kaya, even mm. though those are very powerful cards. I'm going to lose more games, but not being able to survive long enough to cast them. Yeah. So... That's the thing to look at it. And that's generally the main conclusion I had in my head uh, when I was looking at the data. I don't know if I actually managed to confer that conclusion through my writing, but uh, <laughs> that's the idea I had.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, getting close to the end here, but with the Golgari deck, I mean, looking at the graph, it looks like it's the most dissimilar to the other mm-hmm. Snow decks. And you mentioned that it's it's actually more of a ramp deck. What did you mean by that?
2: Right. Um, when I looked at the Golgari deck, it just appeared to me that this is more just your average green black deck it just has snow incidentally it 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 looks to me like someone was drafting a snow deck but it didn't come together for them but mm-hmm. they ended up with a good skeleton of um of a black green deck and on top of that they could have access to some cards that they normally wouldn't have access to like uh, again priest of the haunted edge or Ice Hide troll and uh, they basically built a Rather simple Golgari deck with creatures, you ramp into the big ones and um, you use the Snowlands to ramp yourself. So also, again, the irony, quite quite often Zvella was um, the only splash that you had in that particular mm-hmm. deck. So um, it, yeah. they were quite, quite uh, Golgari, so maybe people were splashing one, two cards in those. But usually one of one, the, the, one one of those cards was Svella. this card looks like to a um, mythic uncommon to me it's just um a game changer and, and and you can see and a couple of times i think that the splashes were uh red cards that um um that are just strong red you know i'm talking immerstrom predator and stuff like that and you can see like okay they're quite far um from jumped but one of the closest archetypes that is Junt, so the, the, the black part of it, uh, the red part of it was sometimes added. And which you can't see from my graphs, but I, of course, know because I analyze the data, there are just those smaller clusters between Golgari and Junt that are also Golgari, but more, more likely than not also have a slight bigger splash of red in them. So it seems like there is a continuum when sometimes those jump decks that are five colors really Mm -hmm. uh, come together and sometimes they don't and you can focus on a more streamlined Golgari build with maybe a couple of red cards splashed in. But it also looks like these decks can be quite successful if you build them right. And by right, this one doesn't even have that much of this early interaction that the other mm, Mm. decks had because Black does not give that much of it, but it has what I call speed bumps. It has the elder funk disciple that you basically just play on turn two sometimes and then you block one big good attack by a four 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 creature and, and gain four life by that and you cost them one card and they cannot really go go full speed against you because you play that little speed bump and it gives you time to sort of build into the bigger things and then you start playing five five six six and um, creatures and and they will never get through it i think that this deck might be weak to flyers. If I look at the composition of what it had, because because um, it just this format doesn't have those you know traditional green ways of dealing with flyers in the form of three five spider, and that's why because they're quite heavy on snow themselves. Uh, this is probably the most natural deck where you can play hailstone Valkyrie, and I think that if I was trying to go this kind of Golgari way, I would pick the hailstone Valkyrie over the ice high Troll, because mm. these two cards do basically the same but the Valkyrie can actually stop the Flyers from killing you, so it's uh, quite useful in that aspect. And I think that if I would go this way, I would also be quite, quite, quite happy to pick up the Elven Bow.
1: Mm. Last but not least, let's touch on the Gruul archetype. So, (laughs) funnily enough, this is, I guess, where Svella belongs, question mark? I mean, it's a red-green card. I guess it should go in the red-green deck. Uh, How did Svella fare in the shit up Gruul decks?
2: So, I think that this is, like, the data discovery i mean i'm sure that someone had discovered this archetype before because clearly there are decks that are played but i don't think it's been um, widely talked about and i think that this is the like best kept secret of uh, drafting in Kalheim, in my opinion mm. looking at this data at least because these decks were amazingly successful i mean when i look at the cluster of those decks that basically almost exclusively trophy decks in the in, in that particular area i'm pretty sure that they don't come together often but I'm not sure if they don't come together often because people don't draft them or because you can't draft them that often. Mm -hmm. So one thing that was very different from Gruul to all the other um, archetypes is that Gruul had almost no splashes, zero. Even though most of those decks played Svela, they never splashed anything. It was just a streamlined red-green aggro deck using the normal red-green aggro cards and then adding the ice cards for mm. just more value. So, I mean, it plays things like Axgard Cal- Cavalry. It plays the Scary Firewalkers. It plays Hajimo without the Black Rune even. It mm. plays Struggle for scamper These are not the cards that you would expect in a snow deck, but they all had like six snow lands and they had like six snow permanents. And they do have Ice Height Troll in almost every single one of them. And, you know, when you think about the uh, red-green aggro, it's pretty aggressive, it's pretty good. But at certain stage, you end up with lots of... 3-2 creatures and maybe a couple of equipments. Now imagine doing the same, but adding the Ice Troll as the finisher, where you basically run out of steam and then at the end of your curve, you just play the Ice Troll and say, okay, now can you deal with this one? Yeah. And you have like four Snowlands on the table and maybe like an Icy Manalith from Zvella. And mm-hmm. it also can use the Spirit of Aldergard, which is great because you just play it and it becomes instantly like a four four five four um, mm-hmm. at the top of your curve, ramps you without having to draw a land, which is great for that deck. So this looks completely different in the way that it's streamlined in terms of color and it uses snow not to play snow nonsense, but to actually make the aggro stronger. And it looks like it does make it very much stronger. And I think that the best card in this deck is the irony in almost every single archetype we took before Svella was the strongest uncommon. Mm -hmm. And here it's Arnie Slays the Troll. This card is just such a powerhouse in this particular deck because you have a lot of creatures. And you remove one blocker almost always, and then you make a much bigger blocker and uh, attacker, and, and, and then you gain life so you can race all you want. So basically, this does the full package of making sure you're not going to lose this game. It's like a sort of mini Cura beats the seagull, uh, <laughs> just costs two mana, and it's in a very aggressive deck that doesn't have a problem of surviving till you cast it. It just right. didn't cost it not turn four.
1: <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Arnie slays the troll. Is the new Kiora Vesta Seagun.
0: <laughs> so that that's awesome. Only better. That's a, only better. <laughs> wow. Um, that that's a lot of like really intense um, insight into a lot of these different decks. And if you want more more understanding of what Sirkovitz has been talking about with all of these archetypes, definitely check out the article that he wrote for 17 lands. Again, the link to that will be in the show notes. Um, I know Ben's got to get going shortly here, so we'll try to wrap up quickly, but we wanted to get just a little bit insight real quick. If you have anything to add that you weren't able to add to the article, wasn't able to make the cut there. What, what doesn't the article tell us and what's next for limited time analysis? I mean, probably I will never
2: have energy to finish that particular analysis, but I also <laughs> wanted to look at the losing decks and seeing what makes them lose, because mm-hmm. there's plenty of the ones that went 3 The nice part of the analysis is that the winning decks clustered together, but the losing decks were peppered all over the place, which means that there might not be a losing archetype. It's mainly variance that causes you to lose the mm-hmm. um, snow deck uh, games. So that's one thing I would like to look at the bigger zones where you have three decks and 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 what makes them not tick and compare them with the winning ones from the same archetype but i probably will never get to it i started doing the same thing for each and every other archetype um in kaltheim so basically looking at each two color combination and trying to figure out their if there are winning and losing clusters i started with black green i did my basic graphs and i can tell you that there are winning clusters like four or five of them so there are four or five different successful builds of uh, Black Green. I'm assuming one of them will be Snow. I'm assuming one of them will be Elves. I'm assuming one of them will be mid range, And I'm assuming mm-hmm. one of them will be something pretty weird. <laughs> but interestingly, I also found losing clusters in there, like mm-hmm. a really big clusters of losing decks. So hopefully we can also see how not to build Golgari decks and maybe awesome. try to speculate why that happened. And we want to repeat that for as many archetypes as we can do. But, you know, the problem is the format lasts for three months, we already got Strixhaven spoilers for yep. some reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I maybe can spit out the thing like that once every two weeks because I mean I have work and family and I also <laughs> sure. want to draft myself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I assume you have a
1: <laughs> life besides all this. <laughs> yeah. But Very cool. Anyway, yeah, this has just been an awesome insight into this format, and I know Zach and I are both super pumped. <laughs> Uh, to see, you know, everything else that you put out. Highly recommend uh, sticking up with this. So if people want to also follow you and, and make sure they're going to see anything else Kaldheim Limited that you're putting out, where can they find you?
2: I'm in the living room.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, you heard it here first. Head on over to his living room and uh, have a um, chat with
2: him. Don't make me spell my nickname. It was, I, I never expected that I would have to spell it to someone because I was always, you know, the funny thing is I started my Twitter thing Because I love the 17 lands data so much that I started analyzing them as a hobby. And I started writing basically to myself, the Mm -hmm. sort of like mulliganing analysis from the publicly available data. That's how I got in to work with the guys because they saw my analysis in the end and they were interested in collaborating and they were quite gracious and, you know, like sharing data with me. And um, I tried to be helpful as well to spread the word about 17 lands. But um, when I started, I was just writing to myself and all my, like my two teammates, all, all my friends, and, and when you say all oh, my friends, and there are two people there, that doesn't sound very good, does it? Um, but my mates that were following it they were just like making fun that I'm writing like this seven uh tweet threads about some data to myself because no one, no one read it. And you know, like fast forward a year, and um, Ben Stark is following me, so you yeah.
0: know, there you go, you, you made it you can, awesome. You can,
2: Writing to your drawer can actually yield results. And, you know, the, the, the thing is I never planned it because that was not my ambition. I just wanted to do my hobby. And I think that's the right approach. Absolutely. If you want to do, be a content creator, you just, like, really want to do it. You just don't have to plan that I want to conquer the world in, in, in five years.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's also a great way to burn out if that's your motivation is to, like, mm. you know, reach a million people right away. You're just never going to continue. So, yeah, that's that's a great uh great insight there as well so long story short we can find Sirkovitz at uh on twitter at Sirkovitz. the link to that will also be in the episode description so he doesn't have to spell it out for you
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly and trust me my surname is even worse to spell so <laughs> <laughs>
0: i'll take your, I'll word, take your word um if you want to talk to us more or the rest of the community or even Sirkovitz, because he does hang around there from time to time check out the discord um the, the link to that is in the episode description as well as on our Twitter page. And um, if you're interested in giving back to the show or supporting us in any way, check out the Patreon uh, patreon.com forward slash DraftChaffPod. If you want to reach out to myself or Ben outside of the Discord, you can do so on Twitter at RannickAlfredian for me or at Betafish1 for Ben. Um, or you can contact the the podcast directly at DraftChaffPod or DraftChaffPod at gmail.com. That's it for us. Thanks so much and again, Sirkovitz. Can I, can, I, can I add one more thing yeah, just go for before it. we go? Because I probably should. Where
2: you can find me is sort of irrelevant, but if you want to start using 17 lens, but you have some issues with that, They also have a very good discord you can find it on 17 linescom and you can actually find um uh the way of getting you know the software installed and 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 if you have any questions on how it works and if you would like to have some you know if you have some ideas and data analysis or if you want to just chat and have uh, like earlier access to the stuff we do I would also recommend joining this Discord, even, even if it's just for technical things. I mean, these guys, or if you would like to see a feature, they are very keen on listening to people's ideas on what feature would you like to see extra. And, you know, not everything is possible, not everything is a priority, but um, I've seen a good number of user-inspired features appearing on the website because that's the kind of guys they are.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, great, great plug there. Definitely check out Seventeen Lands Discord. I've heard it's. I haven't actually spent much time there myself, but I've heard it's it's quite fantastic and a great community there as well.
1: So uh, I, I've got a little bit of a sign off here. I've actually got to get going in a second. I've got some some late birthday plans, but one thing that might maybe I'll request. Uh, I don't know if this is something that a lot of people would be interested in seeing data on, but the use of the emotes. And how it relates to win percentage, <laughs> uh, and I'm not talking about just throwing out like a preemptive good game or an oops or anything. I'm talking about the use of the little nice. hedron emojis. Nice, yeah. Nice. Uh, <laughs> no. I'd love to see that. Brilliant. Um, because Ooh, I, I think of myself, uh, okay, go ahead.
2: I don't know if it logs it. That's the thing. I mean, ah. it would be very interesting if it if it logs it. it would, we have the technology. If it logs, it's in the <laughs> logs. But I'll ask about it. Don't worry.
1: Oh, awesome! I would love to hear about that. Uh, I don't know if I would feel, you know, honorable asking someone to commit actual resource <laughs> at time to, to studying that, but I will say, I will say that I found that uh, Zach can actually attest to this. Over the weekend, he was watching as I was streaming uh, one of my games of the the Open. And my opponent had an extremely profitable attack, but I had mana up, and I—they uh, were tanking, and me being just a little bit of a troll, I used the uh, the falling asleep hedron emoji. Uh, as my opponent
0: was tanking, he, he BM'd. Well, let's let's not mince words here. He <laughs> totally BM'd his opponent repeatedly, and they they ended up
1: not attacking into my open mana, despite the attacks probably probably still being profitable if they had done so. So uh, I ended up going back to win that game, which I, I otherwise would not have. So I can say I'm a solid data point in that analysis <laughs> if it ever ends up going through.
2: I, I, I don't know. I have my hypothesis that people that overuse it in every game are having lower win rates because they focus too much on emoting every five seconds and I find mm-hmm. it super annoying. However, a carefully positioned emoji just in the right time just to create doubt is not a bad thing. <laughs> as long as you're not spamming them.